Captain Picard, priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Am I ready, Roman? To be confused with Standard Orbit, ours is the only Star Trek The Next Generation rewatch podcast with actual on-set insights and stories from those who were there to see the magic happen day in and day out. My name is Mitchell Mels. I was Chief Consultant of Services at Paramount back in the 1980s. And with me is my life partner, Brandon Hobbs, who is Head of Resources Management. Brandon, how are we doing today? I am doing great, Mitch. And uh, to open this episode out, I'd really like to make a bit of a statement. Um, we got a lot of mail. A lot of mail. Um, most of it concerning my treatment of you last episode. Um, a bit controversial. A little controversial, yes. Um, I think I came off just a little bit harsh. Um, and uh, first of all, I'd like to offer my apologies. Um, well, you know, I do intend to do better. We've talked off camera. Um, off we we have, yes, yes. And, and um, I would like to, you know, extend to the audience uh, my apologies, but also, you know, my own story, hmm. which is that, uh, you know, in the same way that Mitch has his gambling addiction, uh, I have my synthahol addiction. Um. I have been struggling with a synthahol addiction for years. I think it started I, on, uh, on the set, right? Like, during production? Yes. Um, well, I mean, yeah, in, in season two, when they when they introduce um, the uh, the bar, what's it called? Uh, point Forward. Point Forward, that's right, yes. Um, most people don't know that that was actually a bar. Right, functional. Uh, that was a fully functional bar. Fully stocked. Uh, where they did serve synthahol. Hmm. Um, and synthahol, while being a much safer alternative to alcohol, is not entirely safe. Fun fact. It's fun fact that most of the audience probably doesn't know. No, it's it, whatever what you see the actors drinking on the set in various episodes. Um, we always had to be very, very careful to either give them an opportunity to spit it out or to just not do that many takes at once in one day because. It really takes a toll on on you know, human biology. Yes, it is. It is addictive, and I have sought help. Um, I am. Uh, I'm currently being helped mm. for my synthahol addiction. Um, but you know, I just wanted to uh, level the playing ground here. Let the audience know that no one's really perfect. I'm not judging, and uh, neither is Mitch. Well, I think that. I think the audience, I think our audience knows how everyone everyone has their own personal demons and evils to fight in that, you're right, nobody is perfect, but it's, this community has always been one to come together, rally behind somebody in their hour of need, support them when they need it, and just welcoming all types of individuals, um, you know, different different evils that people face, whether they've had an alcohol addiction or drug abuse or spousal abuse or they're, you know, some kind of map individual. The Star Trek 
community has always welcomed them. And I imagine it will continue to do so. And it's that community that keeps us coming back week after week to do the hard work, to tell the stories, to recap the episodes. And um, it's a community I wouldn't trade for the world. And if anybody out there listening has their own problems, please know that help is out there. Please know that support is out there. And if you want some support, you can always email your problems to Room at gmail.com. It's a capital T, capital R, capital R. And who knows, might even end up being featured on the show. Very much. That's right. Yeah. And very much like our fan Thad, who asks us this, this week's question of the week. So coming in from Thad, he's got a very, very great question. He's, he says, how did LeVar see through his visor prop while on set? You know, the, the actor who plays Jordy, if you're not going to know. And that is a very, very interesting question. That's a, it's a question that I've never heard anybody ask before. And no, no. I, maybe LeVar might not either. It's just very, very insightful. But I'm sorry to say that the answer to that question might not live up to how deep of a question that it is. And the reason I say that is because LeVar, for the most part, could not see through that prop. He just couldn't. Um, if you notice, in the early seasons, especially season one, most of LeVar's scenes, he's just like standing in place or sitting in a chair. He's not very active moving around. He's never in the away parties. He doesn't do any action. And that's because he couldn't really see anything. Every time he would walk around the set, he would just kind of bump into things, like his hip would hit a table or something. He would trip. He would hit run into the other actors. It was it was a mess. Um, yes, that's right. Right, but eventually, just by sheer force of will and um, you know reinforcement, he learned where things were on our sets because our sets didn't change so much throughout the years. And eventually, he became able to navigate like the engineering set, the bridge set, without needing to see very well at all. And at that point, Jordy really became a much more active character on the show because we could do more with him, right? Now, it it might seem a bit cruel to Lavar to, to do this. Oh, you know, put on this put on what's essentially a blindfold, walk around, you know, try to act that way. But you have to remember that uh Lavar's character was also blind, right? This was a type of method acting. And frankly, I think the results speak for themselves. Yeah, really genius, honestly. Yeah. So, Thad, great question. Anybody else? If you have any more questions, please send them in. We're very happy to answer them. But that takes us to today's episode. And on this episode of The Readier Room, we're going to be discussing Justice, which I believe is the, the sixth or the seventh episode. I'm not quite sure. The sixth, right? The sixth. Yeah, I think. Well, it's I'm pretty it's, sure it's always in flux because the first episode's like a like a two parter, and it's a two parter. Yeah, it could be the sixth or the seventh. Right. Maybe even the fifth. It's a real Who quantum knows? episode. Yeah. Know, depending uh, on how it's <laughs> As every episode in the first season is. Right. Exactly. Um. So justice, justice. Um. I I'd, I'd like to kind of kick this off. Just talking about the original concept of this episode, okay. um, because that that's going to lead us right into what the episode actually became, mm. which in itself is uh, it's pretty interesting. But the original uh, the original pitch for the story was uh, 
I think, a good idea. Solid concept, right? So what was so the in the original pitch, hmm. the 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 Enterprise has to navigate this culture that you know, kind of kind of the same as, as what we got. It's a culture that punishes all crime with death, right? Um, the conflict actually in the original pitch was that a security officer from this planet killed an Enterprise officer, right, and then would also be sentenced to death. Um, actually, I think by um by their own spouse or lover or something right like 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 their own spouse or lover had to execute them i remember this because it was cool in that finally we were going to bring like the concept of the red shirt into into tng like this that's would, right yeah this would be that, 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 was, that was a big callback yeah mm-hmm. yeah that was a callback uh which sadly did not make it onto screen um but also interesting with the original concept was was that there was going to be this kind of subplot of a uh, a rebel uprising on this same planet that was not cool with this uh, this kind of like rigid you know system of law right so a lot of things going on in the original script now the thing is when Gene read it he was not happy um, a lot of people don't know this but this was actually the second uh, treatment to have been submitted uh, the first being um, encounter at Farpoint. Right. So logically, this would have been the second episode to the film. But Gene was so unhappy with the script, he nearly just tossed it completely. Led uh, to a lot he of said it wasn't, He said it wasn't sexy enough. Oh, jeez. So, <laughs> Thorne, the, the, uh, the, the writer for the episode, the teleplay writer for the episode, um, he was really scrambling to get these aliens into some kind of workable form that Gene would approve of, right? So his first attempt was uh, just to make the aliens these human-like nudists, um, which, you know, we do see echoes of in the final product, but even, like, that was just not enough. So he added this subplot relationship um, with Riker and one of the alien women, hmm. which, you know, usually Gene's pretty keen on, but that was not enough. Um, so the, the script went through like rewrite after rewrite until Gene just finally settled with, uh, <laughs> a culture that spends all day having orgies and, um, uh, playing ball. Yeah. I'm not sure why he was so fixated on that. Bit. It, that was one element that in Gene's vision survived all the way through the process. The, the, yeah, the playing yeah, ball. The playing ball bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um. To this day, we still don't really know what playing ball is, because uh, we we are treated to a, a very lengthy scene of playing ball in in the final episode, and um, even on set we couldn't really discern what the rules were supposed to be to that game. Yeah, I I assume it's some kind of visual metaphor, some visual storytelling, in that playing ball is directly what leads to Wesley Crusher's downfall. But right, con- right. Connecting the dots on that one um, is best left to the individual, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you really, really can't uh, can't downplay Gene's just genius here, right? You know, he's um, he's always a few levels above everyone else, playing very far yeah. above the rim, Gene. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, far be it from us to really judge what this episode turned into. Um, but 
all these changes really, uh, they ended up removing a lot of the conflict of the actual episode, right? Because originally there was going to be that, you know, that rebel faction and having to contend with all that stuff. So, um, basically we just ended up having to throw a god into it. Yeah, which was the go-to, uh, solution in those days. It was, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the astute viewers at home who've been watching along at season one will note that this is one of several episodes so far that have had the Enterprise crew encountering some kind of god, right? And yep, yep. For the, like, this was intentional. Um, part of, like, the design uh, Bible that Gene laid out was that threats to the Enterprise really had to be something that could not be solved with firepower. Like, Gene viewed the Federation's fighting capabilities as being too far advanced for any normal alien species to contend with, so the the Enterprise always had to go up against godlike beings or um, things they couldn't fire at, like like rule of law. And this episode yeah. combines those two things. Um, eventually, I think in the latter half of season one, maybe the beginning of season two, we were finally able to convince Gene to kind of let this go in that it's going to get so tiring to write in a new god every week for the Enterprise to just fight and this is only episode six or seven, whatever we decided it was, and it was already just getting so uh, rote. Yeah, I mean, by this point, we've had what four gods? I think so. Let's can we name them all? So, so we got Q. We got Q. We got the 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 wizard, like prog rock keyboardist from the Ferengi episode. <laughs> yes, we have the traveler. The traveler, and now we have like this uh, see through spaceship in this one. Yeah. Okay, there might be one more, I'm not sure. I actually do think that's it. In but all all kind of follow the same trajectory of just uh, you know, the uh the Enterprise crew being talked down to and then the uh the Enterprise crew reciting platitudes to resolve the situation. And then the god just disappears. The god just disappears. Yeah. Back from whence he came. Yeah. So, so let's get into the meat of this episode, huh? Yeah, let, the episode itself, not not its surrounding circumstances. So what happens in this episode is the Enterprise is tasked with, I think they're they're visiting a colony that that the Federation planted on a planet. Like they, they knew so so they're 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 delivering colonists to a planet, and then on the way. I guess back from that planet to wherever the hell they were going, they'd stumble upon this planet of blonde people. Oh, see, I thought that the colonists they were delivering were being delivered to this planet. No, and and we can definitely start talking about that um, in terms of the prime directive. Yeah, let's because that's that's the the. Um... The most annoying point of this episode. Yeah, so this, this, is, this is another logic-defying Prime Directive-breaking episode where the Enterprise touches down on a planet that is pre-warp. Hmm. I don't even think they have space which, travel. That, yeah, that's it. You're, like, you're not supposed to contact any planet that is pre-warp. And they just do. They just do. Yeah. It's just... 
not even talked about. There's so much talk in this episode of like, oh, you know, we have our own laws called the Prime Directive, and, you know, we take them very seriously. And the very fact that they are putting together an away team, that alone um, violates the Prime Directive. Right. The Prime Directive is not about, like, oh, you know, um, don't mess with them seriously. It's don't mess with them at all. Don't interact with them at all. You, you see so yeah, many and, and we, we see that. I'm sorry. Yeah, but... exactly. No, yeah, I was, I was just going to make the same exact point you did. We see that so much later on. Yeah, they have, like, outposts so they can observe whatever... Um, uh, planet it is without being seen by its inhabitants they they put on disguises so that they can integrate into society without alerting anybody that they're there right um, right but in this episode they just touch down um and uh conveniently the alien race on the planet is not at all interested in space travel right well i think even more they're conveniently not, not the, the alien race is just human beings <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's a couple layers to this. Um, so the episode opens up with uh, Riker being very happy. Yeah, because he's he he went ahead of time. He went ahead of time, yes. Um, but why is he happy? Why is because, he? Happy? Yeah, because um, I, I would like to draw attention to uh, a series of quotes from from the bridge crew. Jordy says um, something along the lines of, uh, "They'll uh, they'll have sex at the drop of a hat." Remember that? I do. And then, and then Yar responds, "Any hat." And I just like to know what "any hat" the phrase "any now, hat." Did she mean like like a, this like a, like a condom or an actual hat? I'm I don't know. I'm so confused by this line. Yeah. Any hat? That's kind of implied, isn't it? There's a lot drop of a hat. There's a lot of that going on in early TNG writing, I think. Um just tags to the end of certain lines that add virtually nothing and detract quite a bit. Yeah. Maybe like maybe maybe Denise had a certain amount of lines she was contractually obligated to say every episode. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Uh, but so you know, um, the Riker comes in all smiles because he just went to a planet where everyone has sex, um, and Riker loves sex. It's very important that that the viewer understands that. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, and if we didn't know before, we know now. Right. So they uh, they discover this planet by chance. They beam down. They you know they they had a an initial party go down and make contact. And the episode starts with Riker basically beaming up with his party and being very happy about it. Um, Picard sends another party down, including Wesley for some reason, who is a new acting ensign. Well, can I, can I interject right here? Because yeah. already we're at a point where uh, things start to go slightly awry um, behind the scenes. So, this away team that is the first one the audience sees goes to the planet was extremely contentious. Not among the producers or the writers or the director, but among the cast of all people. So, hmm. 
when when the concept of this episode was being pitched and like the cast was reading the scripts, they were doing their table read. Um, I think it was Frakes who noted that this initial away team was made up of only and exclusively the attractive members of the the bridge crew of the cast. Um, because in the first right. first draft, it was Riker, Troy, Wesley Crusher, and Doctor Crusher were the only ones who went. And the idea was that, right, like, oh, right. these these were the members of the crew who would fit in in this picturesque, um, yes, society of of attractive people. And you know, Frakes was kind of being a braggart about it. But as soon as that idea was floated, all the cast they all just got extremely either offended if they weren't in there or smug if they were. And the ones who were offended ended up like tracking down certain writers, like, oh, you got to rewrite this. I should be in this away team. I'm, you know implicitly saying like oh i'm attractive enough to be there and you know some of their um complaints ended up panning out like we see tasha yar in the final um away team she ended up being let in um it's some of the revisions like really do clash with how gene originally envisioned all this but you know it happens i suppose it happens it's just it, it really is a shame that uh that Yar did end up in that party because um it's hard to suspend your disbelief. It is, you and know? you see well, it, it does add a little bit of, of realism because in some of the scenes where Yar is interacting with the locals, you can see looks of visual visual discomfort on their face. And it yeah it, it makes sense, yeah. you know, if if Tasha Yar would go down to that planet, then of course everybody would be a little put off. Yeah, I guess I guess in the end it did kind of give the planet a little more character. It know? did. Um, but speaking of Frakes, though, <laughs> he himself was uh, more than a little upset about his character's role in this episode. Yeah, if you remember, <laughs> I, can st- I can still smell it. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I mean, you remember the amount of work we had to put in for this one. Um, so he, he he spent a lot of his time on set pouting about how Riker just was not having enough sex on this show and uh i mean this this includes all the previous episodes this one really laid it there because it's obviously an episode about sex right um and you know what better time to do this with this character than now right and it even sets Um, it up at the beginning it does yes it does yeah which which is odd that, that they didn't really follow through with it but um i guess i guess in some kind of retaliatory way or something every morning he would just down three or four onion bagels and uh (laughs) then he then he'd spend his entire afternoon just propositioning the female extras um and i'm not really sure how successful he was with that but the number of onion bagels that had to be bought for this man was unbelievable every day jesus so it was it was insane Anyway, moving on, now that we're past the the Frakes issue, which is really what always comes to my mind when I think of this episode. Yeah. Um, so they go down to this planet, and this is where we see our first glimpse of it. And I, I guess we should explain, what we've alluded to it quite a lot, but what exactly um, society's like down there. <laughs> It, it's um, the, it's our first true um, outdoor location shots. 
it's yeah yeah it's it's a location shot i mean uh the first one since uh the pilot was was there outdoor shots of the pilot yeah huh. yeah you don't remember um there there were location shots for Riker meeting dr crusher yes you're right i do remember that yep. okay at far point itself was mm-hmm. the, uh, yeah, yeah yeah at far point itself yeah okay so since then, it was all just cooped up in the studio, but now we're finally back outside, and it's everything looks appropriately lush. Um, I like the location that they used. It's um, and they got extras to match that. Is is how I would describe it. If if um everything is fresh and nubile and the nature is all blonde, then certainly yeah the extras yeah. Match. So um yeah. Yeah, so 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 the code name around the studio during production is that this was the uh, the Aryan episode. Yeah. Uh. So yeah. Not hard to see. Every, everyone, as you can imagine, um, as you have probably seen if you're following us along our our watch of the show, is everyone is white, blonde, young, strong, uh, clad in pure white. Yeah. So um. At the time, it was pretty difficult to separate what we were filming from that concept, just given how ridiculous it all was. And uh, I know a few people asked Gene whether or not it was, it was intentional. Mm. Um, but Gene being Gene, his answers are always kind of uh, kind of a bit coy. Uh, I mean, you know, I will say that that during a during a production meeting one day. He did refer to the planet as, uh, quote, paradise, uh, which is, I guess, is the only clue we have to go on. Um, so, you know, I'll leave the listeners to draw their own conclusions on that one. Well, but, yeah, all blonde people. Some of the, the things that we shot, I think, led or lent some more um, clues as to what was kind of going on. Um, so there was a lot, a lot a lot of explicit shots of the extras kind of like um, frolicking together or you know, being affectionate with one another. Um, not even None of the crew, just the extras, you know, in this kind of fanciful location that, that was mm-hmm. really nice. And it was always Gene taking over the direction for those, those scenes that we shot. And he, he had a philosophy for it for directing those scenes, he called it pornography for the soul. And... (laughs) That's right. Yeah, it it involved mostly just the female extras um, doing something something or other with each other. And a lot of it did not make it to the final final cut. I think most of that footage just went home with Gene into his personal collection. But when we you know, everybody was kind of concerned about how much you know film we were using, how much time we were spending, because we only had so many hours of daylight to to get these these shots filmed. And if a lot of it was being spent on this, like what were we even doing there? And right, a, we a lot of us petitioned the director to talk to Gene because you know he's, Gene's not going to listen to you or me talking to him, right? And Gene was very very unhappy to have this brought up to him, which. It makes me relieved that I didn't try to do it. But Gene insisted that if we're going to spend all this time and money securing this location, moving out here, that he's going to get his money's worth uh, to clean up his language a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, 
he kind of took the role of director upon himself. Yeah. For a lot of this episode, um, because according to him, the uh, the mood of the society on this planet was was going to be you know very sixties, very free love kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, he he wanted he wanted the extras to kind of always be. I guess, you know, touching each other, grabbing each other, necking, you know, according to him. Um, and you'll remember that the extras were not so thrilled with this. No, not uh, at all. Aside from maybe one, one or two of the one or two, one or two of the male actors or extras, I guess you should call them. Um, we're on board, but pretty much all the women were just not having it. Um, it it was it was not really a a fun set to be on. <laughs> it was pretty rough. Gene um, would constantly interrupt or interrupt cuts um, because people weren't, uh, I guess, affectionate enough for him. Yeah, it was very strict about it. Like they had the physical direction had to meet his standard, and yeah. if. If they were at all like just kind of pussyfooting around it, Gene would stop the shot and correct them very aggressively. Correct them very aggressively. Yeah, he he really had a vision about this. Mm. Um, yeah, it well, was uh, it was it was it was a lot. You remember the biggest way that his vision kind of kind of faltered from the the final product, right? Like initially, mm. the the people on this planet were supposed to be like nudists i suppose or they just didn't have clothing not that it was i guess nudism is more of a statement that people make but these people just never made clothing because they didn't need it and it was a foreign concept to them and there'd be this whole thing when the enterprise crew comes down they see the uniforms like oh my god what is with your skin it's like oh that's not skin it's right, clothes, right right yeah yeah and it was a whole yeah. thing but we had at several times throughout the process we always had to tell gene that you can't just have nudity on television like i have no idea how somebody with his amount of experience in television would just conveniently forget that he couldn't do this um mm -hmm. and gene would always counter with like oh you know we'll have strategically placed plants around the sets that would cover everything up it would be okay um, don't worry about it but the logistics of blocking something like that for every single shot with the obscene amount of extras that he had hired um, of course it wasn't going to work uh, even once we like got him to acquiesce to this he just always was kind of pouty with the costumes that we had it was yeah it was really hard to get something that worked with his vision of what the show should be right right yeah it, it was, it was yeah. difficult to please yeah, and even then, I mean, not only with Gene, but the costumes were pretty divisive among the fans, too, you know. Um, they were pretty revealing, mm. which, you know, it, you know, going going from what we've been talking about so far, you might have thought that it was like a Gene thing, um, <laughs> but it's not. Yeah, this one was, for once, for once, it was not Gene. It was, it was actually just a pure coincidence. Um, the... Uh, The, the the costume designers really didn't have much to work with because we were under kind of a budget crunch mm. by this point, and so all they really had for the costumes was just this spool of white fabric. 
and Plain they had white. to make this work for like 20 extras at a time. Um, you know, the goal being just make them as simple as possible with as little fabric as possible. Um, and they ended up being really revealing. And a lot of the actors probably shouldn't have been quite as revealed. The, the end result was, in a way, to Gene's liking. Um, because if, if, if you'll remember, I mean, he wasn't so thrilled with the fact that the actors had to be clothed, but the, the lead actor, or the, the lead extra there, um, you know, the, the main guy, right? Yeah. He had a little bit of a belly, right? He, and, and you, he was not camera ready. He wasn't camera ready, but you'll notice that his costume accentuates his stomach. It kind of frames it, in a way. It, it it absolutely frames it. Um, that was actually a gene idea. He found it hilarious. He would he would giggle at it every time he saw it. So you know we were forced to dress him just in this ridiculous costume that framed his his you know kind of pudgy stomach. Um, and you know that's that's why you know for the audience you you see this guy who is clearly not fit to uh, be wearing a costume such as this, wearing such a costume. Mm. Well, the the problem with those costumes, yes, to some extent, it it was a window into something that most people would rather not see. But the design of them also just created a ton of problems on set, because given the nature of them, that it's just like like two pieces of fabric fastened together at a very small anchor point. Um, mm-hmm. very often they would that they would just become uh, unattached from one another. The amount of wardrobe malfunctions we had on set was, I think that this episode outnumbers every other episode put together because most of the time yeah, our, our costumes were pretty good. But every other shot, it seemed like oh somebody's uh you know costume snapped in half, came undone, and oh get somebody in there to fasten it back together. We had to do this so many times that in several scenes you can see the light reflecting off of the staples that we use to staple those two pieces of fabric together. Um, mm-hmm. It was awful. And imagine yeah. how it feels to, you know, that's your job. Uh, my job is to walk up to this, you know, beer belly mid-30s actor and just staple his clothes together while he wears them. It was yeah. not a fun day. It was uh, really demeaning for pretty much everyone involved. We saw a lot that day that we did not want to see. Um, and some things we did want to see, to be fair. Yeah, um, I mean, there we were some positives there. Yeah. Yeah, there, there were some positives. But, um, I, you know, enough about the costumes. I think we've kind of run that into the ground. Um. Let's uh, let's let's continue with uh, with where this episode goes, huh? Oh, this episode goes somewhere. Well, I mean, it doesn't really go anywhere, but it does. It does try to go. It does. Uh, they beam down to the planet, right? Right. We're still here, and um, we're we're still at the beginning of the episode. By the way, they beam down to the planet, and we're treated to a uh, a very awkward sequence of. Uh, the uh the, the two main 
yeah, the two main extras kind of introducing themselves, the aliens introducing themselves to the Enterprise crew, and you know, being very overtly sexual. Um, they're they're to, very uh, overtly sexual, but at the same time, very not. I, I don't know how to describe this. It's like everybody has an image of human sexuality, right? And yeah, yes, they're they're human beings, adult human beings, dressed scantily and being in close physical contact. But at the same time, they don't act in a way that I think would turn on anybody. Um, the dialogue. No, there's a lot of hugging. There's a lot of like hugging and just like being in close proximity without doing anything about it. You know, everybody's kind of stiff. Everybody's kind of yeah. um, plastic. I would say is how they act. Yeah, it's it's strange. It's strange. It's, yeah, it's not at all titillating. You're reach you're reaching kind of an uncanny point with 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 the way these these people interact with each other. Um, but the Enterprise crew doesn't seem to have any qualms about this because they're all very excited about it. I mean, even Worf is excited about it. You know, um, Troy and and Riker exchange meaningful looks when when the woman hugs Riker. Right, but then then uh, Troy gets hers when. Uh... When the man comes up and propositions her, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, you know, even even Yar gets a little little action with the guy, um, which is you know somewhat vomit inducing for the viewer, but um, it, it is you know, science fiction. Uh, it is science fiction. Wesley is the odd one out, but well, in in some respects because he's a minor, but but yes. Yeah, well, so, you know, it wasn't really written this way. I mean, what teenage boy wouldn't jump at the chance to, you know, have an orgy with a few beautiful women, a few beautiful Aryan women? Depend, even, it depends know? on whether or not this teenage boy is uh, in a Japanese anime or not. Well, yeah, you know, that, that would also... Uh... <laughs> that may also dictate his reaction. Mm. Uh but in this case, it's a little bit different. Because um, at this point, we had, we had Will, um, who was really just unable to divorce himself from his own character. You know, um, he kind of just, I, I really don't understand uh, what, what, his, what his mental process was, or if he had kind of just like a, a disability here, but... He and Wesley were the same as far as he was concerned. Mm. And this only kept getting worse and worse and worse, you know, until you get to the point where, you you know, you look at Will Wheaton today and, you know, you know that's, that's, that's what he is. Yeah, he's still doing um, Star Trek conventions yeah, and promos. Yeah, yeah he, he, he thinks he's Wesley. Um, Both names starting with a, with a W certainly didn't help. It was pretty confusing, I think, even for us. Uh, I can't remember the number of times I accidentally called Will Wesley. Right. It's like, hey, Wes. Or um, vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a little embarrassing, but you know, whatever. But so, in this scene, you know, he's he's kind of kind of propositioned for like a little action, right? He's flirted with. Yeah, yeah, but he immediately cuts that right off, right? Yeah. Um. And like I said, this was not written in the script. Like, he was going to be all for it. 
but Will being Will, he was very uncomfortable with being touched or being in any kind of intimate situation at all. Right. You know, so he immediately, every time we would try to shoot the scene and there were several reshoots, he would immediately just kind of like shut down and default to, you know, his own mental reaction, which again, he could not really divorce, uh, uh, divorce from, from Wesley, his character. And, uh, you know, just just completely, just completely cut off any any possible uh, sex that could be happening here. Right, and it, it only got worse when the 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 other kids that he was supposed to meet are introduced. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And yeah, the whole yeah, the, the whole romance bit. subplot there got cut. Um, yeah, it it really it really took a lot of improv from everyone to get this into uh, both an understandable state and also a state with which Will was comfortable. Right. Um, because, yeah, you know, in, in that scene, the, uh, the, the girl says, you know, I'd like to do something with you. And uh, Will just completely goes off script and says something like, I, you know, there's games I don't know yet or something like that. Um, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. At, at one, at one point, they, uh, they're talking about he's trying to introduce baseball to them for some reason. He's talking about sticks. It's like, do you guys got a stick? And or a yeah, bat or something. Yeah. It's like none of that was in the script. But when you see when you see the extras, uh, talking about like, oh yeah, um, uh, I think so. That's that's their improv. That's why it's that's a so genuine stupid. reaction. Yeah, that's a genuine because yeah because you never see them playing with the stick. Right. The next time you see them, they're running in a single file line. Tossing the ball back and forth, you know, Gene's quote playing ball. It's it's very it influenced um, the 2006 picture, The Room, I believe, when yeah the football scenes in that in that film are very very similar to what we see here. They are reminiscent, and uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they if they did take some inspiration from that. Yeah. So, but leading on from that. Right, Wesley. Wesley uh, runs runs for the ball after one of the one of the kids, throws, Fred from YouTube, throws the ball um, for Wesley to catch it. Um, and he he lands in a glass flower uh, glass greenhouse. covered garden. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't even call it a greenhouse. It's tiny. It's a designated no landing zone, which is the most yeah. important part of the plot. But before we get off of this, can we just talk about those kids, quote unquote, kids for a moment, and how one of them has like a hairier chest than Riker. I didn't even notice that. You didn't notice that the guy looks like he's like thirty. And <laughs> I did not notice that. Oh my god! It, he was just like he was short, which is why I guess they put him as as one of the the, the teenage extras. But man, he looks like like he like, like I said, like he's pushing his thirties. It's insane. But anyway, um, they so yeah, Wesley like crashes into this this garden, and unbeknownst to him, that's a place you're not allowed to to be. It's breaking the law to be in that uh, area. Yeah, and because he broke the law, they're gonna kill him. And then that's that's the 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 thrust of the episode from here on out. Yeah. 
because this this planet has or the society i suppose their system of law is founded on very very strict um principles you break the law you die and that's it and it's a it's a swift deterrent and it works for them mm-hmm. and it becomes about saving wesley crusher while respecting quote unquote while respecting the prime directive which again <laughs> is not really applicable here because it's already broken right right and um that's right folks it's a wesley episode <laughs> meanwhile i guess what you could call the b plot is unfolding on the enterprise yes. in orbit where uh picard comes in contact with a god there's a um, floating space station in the shape of a space station yeah and it it exhibits like pretty i guess godlike powers it sends over an energy vessel that penetrates the ship and um uh communes with Picard before interfacing with data and disabling data for a bit um, yeah it just knocks him right out yeah it 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 demonstrates the ability to be omnipresent like whenever they um they're on the planet or on or on the enterprise it is able to hear them it it has the ability to attack the Enterprise. Like at one point, it starts rushing at the Enterprise to to crash into it, which would surely destroy mm-hmm. the Enterprise. So it's a you know it's a decently threatening entity. Um, yeah, yeah, but this that's that is a B plot. Well, I don't want to spoil things, but ultimately does not go to very many places. No, not at all, not at all. Um... Basically, what happens is that so it's it's really hard to be, despite the fact that the A plot and the B plot connect, it's really hard to um, to naturally talk about them in a linear fashion because it's almost like they don't connect. They don't. The, uh, the only from, connection, from a narrative perspective, yeah, from a narrative perspective, the in the logic of the show, the only connection is that the society that they're visiting views this entity as their god. They call it god. Right, they they created right. it, but the two plot threads do not intersect very much at all. No, no, they really yeah they they don't converge in any meaningful way. But so the the god needs to um. Well, the god doesn't need to do anything. Picard needs to understand what the god wants, right? And uh, so it needs to interface with data for some reason. Well, by by um, interfacing with data, it learns about everything about. Uh, the Federation. Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. And um, we're treated to a wonderful scene of uh, Crusher once again examining Data just despite being an android. Yeah, as if he's human. Yeah. Yeah, so so this one's a closely kept secret. So all the time in our scripts, we see we see Crusher examining Data you know, like she does in this episode. About half the time, one of the writers or someone on set, you know, one of the actors or, you know, the, the crew would, would just remember that this really doesn't make sense because Data's an android. He's not organic. Right? Mm. Um, and then the other half of the time, it would just sneak right into the episode. Like like this episode. Right. I mean, I think, I think leading up to this episode, it happened once before. Well, once once on screen, but it, it had to have happened three or four times in script. Right. And luckily, uh, and luckily we caught it. 
yeah 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 um but when it does happen it's uh you know more than a little embarrassing i think you know we we get so much fan mail calling this out we even read some of it too it's it's a reasonable but, complaint i think but it's at the same time who cares if if Crusher, I care, if, I kind of care. If Crusher's gonna be wearing like silly um, NES Zapper helmets and ha- and bringing people back from the dead, sure she can operate on Beta. Well, I mean, those two things don't really excuse the, uh, the how illogical it is to operate on on a, on a robot. No, it certainly a, doesn't. A but what I mean is that the whole everything Crusher's doing inside medical might as well just be voodoo magic. For how much, <laughs> how much sense magic. it makes. Except, except when it's not allowed to be, like making a making a vaccine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If if it could solve actually solve the problem of the episode, then she can't do it. Uh-huh. So, so that's wonderful. Yeah. So he, you know, she's he she has to examine data because this god basically knocks out data after, um, using him as a as a. Uh, viewpoint to get all the information on Starfleet yeah, and Federation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so, so meanwhile, on the planet, I don't think we mentioned that Wesley is going to be executed for um, we, we falling did. into the glass. We did. did we? We did. I think. I thought we just mentioned that that was like a like a no fly zone. Uh, well, no, I mentioned. I think I did. Oh, I can't even remember. Five minutes ago, I think I mentioned um, the system of law on that planet. How it is, you know, one strike only. And then you're dead. Okay. Well, in any case, Wesley's going to be executed, and um, there's a lot of back and forth, right? There's some back and forth. I don't know about a lot, but there is. There's a lot. I guess suppose it's just a bunch of talking, but like this is supposed to be the the slower paced Prime Directive episode. Like that's that's what it's going for. Yeah. And that's a formula we see very often throughout the series run. And I like that this is kind of laying the groundwork for it. Um, you could say that the episode with the, the vaccine was also trying to do something similar. But I think that this one, in that it wasn't solved by a silly death match, um, <laughs> it, do, it does the concept a little better. Yeah. Because I think it's cool. The, the, I, th- I think... Yeah. I, I, th- I like the idea that, um, all right, we we have all this advanced firepower and all this stuff, but we still need to have a logical way of debating this structure, this society's structure for their laws. And right. it turns out they re- can't really do that. Um, it's it's that's what's most interesting to me about Star Trek is I. <sighs> It's the, yeah. inter- the interactions of all these things. Like, Prime Directive episodes are generally some of my favorite episodes. It's... because, And the reason it, they are is because they always involve the Federation's hands being tied in some way. Um, where they're powerless in the face of something that they could crush if they wanted to. But they don't. Right. Because they're principled. Right. And right. that is always a scenario that that makes for um an interesting science fiction story to me 
Yeah, I guess we need to leave the uh, the inherently, uh, or sorry, the inherent violation of of the prime directive as yes. the episode start. Yes. We have to leave that on the table, Certainly. I guess, because that... you can't really judge this episode uh, by any degree. Um, just you know, taking that as a given because it is horrible. And that's a large reason why I view this as more of um, uh, like um, an early exploration of the concept rather than. The yeah. full iteration of doing it well, because they do just start off by throwing the prime directive out the window, and then they keep trying to bring it back and say, "No, no, you already right. violated it. Um, yeah. <laughs> let it go." But you're you're right. It is it is kind of inherently interesting, and I think this this episode really does Picard justice as a character. It's very fun to watch him try to wrestle with this this moral conundrum. Yeah, and especially and, at this point when Picard is very anti-child. Like him having explicit affection for Wesley, um, mm-hmm. himself, because you know Crusher, Doctor Crusher, is distraught, hysterical, and she's kind of going at Picard for not having the same um, emotional reaction that she is, and then Picard fires back like, "No, of course I care about Wesley. Like I'm feeling the exact same way. I'm just, you know, I'm the fucking captain. I can't, I can't just go around crying all the fucking time." And, and right, you know. He's he's not a woman. Yeah. Right. So he might be yeah. the furthest of the crew from a woman. Yeah, probably. So it's it's this cool. all culminates in um in in Picard confronting the uh the sex people on their planet, right? Yeah. He he tries to make um make a speech. That'll save the day. Right. And he does make a speech that'll save the day. Uh, not the first, but not the last, where Picard looks up to the sky and recites some moral platitude and gets away with it. Well, here's the thing about the, the climax, that climax that we're talking about, is that the initial plan was to just take Wesley and run away, like beam out of there. And only mm. only when the gods stopped them from doing that did they have to like justify themselves morally yeah but why why would a god uh really find anything picard said enlightening in that scene yeah i don't know they they try to paint the gods as unknowable and they you know they are we don't get very many details about them at all so they they might they might not be at such a high level where something immortal would say would uh would be new to them but, yeah, well, I mean, the, the gods are basically like I think I think they touched upon it in the episode. They're just evolved mortals. Yeah, it's like a group of them inside. Yeah, yeah. this data yeah. offers like some amount of insight into what they are, having communed with with the, the ball of energy. But right, yeah, I mean, it, it's of course the whole resolution feels a little um, hokey. In that, anytime you're gonna plead with a a yet unseen force off camera, and they just acquiesce without a response, it's like, okay, I guess you did it. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and it it, the whole episode really relies on the audience's innate um, reaction of unfairness to to this system of law. Mm Hmm. Where it's like, yeah, of course it's not fair to kill somebody on the first time. 
that they break the law. Yeah, you tell them, Picard, and you're out of there. You did it. But, it, you know, if you take any kind of, like, relativistic view on the situation, then it really is just the the Enterprise crew coming in, shitting on this uh, developing society, and leaving. And absconding. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. It's like, it absolutely is. And they broke the law. Yeah, There's no ahead. restitution for, for that. Um... Wesley uh, Wesley doesn't learn anything in this episode. He doesn't have an arc. It's it's no. really just like, oh, look at these barbarians. We're better than they are. Our morals are better than they are. Bye. Well, in a way, I kind of like that. Because Star Trek doesn't really go into that realm often. Usually there is kind of like a relativistic moral viewpoint that you get with each episode. That's what and the this one directive kind of, is, is. It's entirely yeah. relativistic. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but it is It is nice to see Picard just make the decision, just, you know, screw it. You know? While that is, um, it's nice in the sense that it doesn't happen before then or after this very often at all. But, you know, how many times have they had a discussion about, like, oh, you're you're ready to let this amount of people die? And Picard's just like, yeah. Yeah, it's the prime directive, buddy. Of course I'll do it. And right. and then the one time it's Wesley, it's like, no, fuck. Well, me. you know, Wesley's special. Wesley's special. Wesley's special. Special little, special little guy. So even more egregious than all of this, though, is the resolution of the episode. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. What uh, resolution? <laughs> Where the uh, alien space station disappears and Picard says, okay, and then they leave. Well, that was and that's that, it. That was part of a rewrite, um, a very hasty rewrite. I might add. This uh-huh. originally this was going to be part one of a two-part episode. Um, oh, is that right? Yeah. So part one would have played out mostly the same as it did here, um, whereas part two would have been about the Enterprise's interactions with this space station god thing. That was where we were going to learn about them and their motives and their society, and it was going to be like a really um, philosophically based, slower episode, a lot of talking, a lot of um, just you know science fiction exploration of a higher culture, where we've seen a lot of lower cultures um, explored by the Federation. This is going to be like a real higher one, not just one being, but the whole of that spaceship, that whole group. So it was going to be really cool. Um, the idea for that ended up being vetoed by Gene, who thought it wasn't like action packed enough and wouldn't you know it the next episode after this ends up being about like a spaceship battle uh, a lot of action scenes a lot of special effects um, yeah but yeah it, because of that the ending of this one had to be rewritten to close the door somewhat but we did want it to be open-ended in that if we ever wanted to come back to these uh this spaceship god like thing uh we could right the, the the two them and the enterprise didn't weren't combative with one another, they could see each other again, it'd be fine. Um, of course, it never ended up happening, but, you know, the door was open for it. Hmm. But, as it stands, it's an extremely unsatisfying conclusion for for the episode. No, it's, it's terrible. Because you're painted, the whole thing is, is framed as having two different, um, not, not antagonists, but 
other other forces. You have the Enterprise, you have the Society, and you have the God. And you have two different conflicts. Yeah, two different conflicts. That's 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 a good way of putting it. And once the conflict with the society is is solved, the conflict with the god just disintegrates. It it doesn't resolve yeah. at all. Yeah, and and really, it should have kind of been the other way around. They're layered in such a way that the god conflict is much more important than the conflict with the aliens. Right. Um. So it makes no sense that the conflict with the aliens being resolved would make the god just fuck off, but he does. That's it. Yeah. And that's, that's the end of the episode. That's, that's it, boys. Pack it up. What I like to think about is the next time a spacefaring society comes to this planet and they go down to the surface and all the, all the people are like, oh my god, you space travelers, you come down here, break our laws, and then run away. Like, get the fuck out of here. What the hell are you doing here? I'm I'm really interested to see um, just how the next Prime Directive episode goes. It's going to be really fun to compare the two. It's got to be better than this. It's got to be. I mean, it will be. I'm sure. Hopefully. Maybe, I'm not really sure. Maybe the next Prime Directive episode is just like a really good one. Like that one where Riker's in the alien hospital. And it's it just takes five seasons, three seasons to, and, uh, to do another one. He uh, he does have sex, or he has propositions for sex in that episode. Right, but the if I remember correctly on that one, the actress he hired was not attractive enough to like be Frakes' equal. So he had to strip. No, Frakes did not like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we'll get to there when we when we get there. Yeah, yeah. But until then, we've got a new segment. A new segment. A new segment. Oh my god. Computer, run program, Star Trek trivia. So this is one many people don't know. But mm. Captain Picard actually has what's known as the most comfortable chair in the universe. At his estate back in France on Earth. Mm. So it was given to him uh, after the events of Star Trek Nemesis by Klingon Delegate. And uh, the scene where this happened was left on the cutting room floor, but if you bought the original Laserdisc release, you would have been able to see it. So, you know, fun fact about our captain. See, I love, I love, love, love things like that, where it's a real reward for the true fans who are, you know, sifting through the Blu-rays, DVDs, Laserdisc releases of all this, deleted scenes, the, the old drafts of the scripts novels and all mm -hmm. that there's so much rich trivia and lore that that is kind of like it's very similar to an archaeological dig to me like it's all out there you just got to go find it and the more effort you put in as a fan the more uh rewarded you will be absolutely it's it really just shows the depth of this franchise super deep extremely deep franchise and um you know, speaks to the intelligence of the audience, you know, just, just how inquisitive you have to be to be a Star Trek fan. All right. So, everybody, that will do it for this week's episode of The Readier Room. Join us next week when we talk about the next episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And until then, everybody, stay ready. The troublesome little man-child. 
consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. Beginning, 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 beginning.